You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 17 is where we are tonight in our study of God's holy word. I want to read beginning at verse 1 down to verse 13, but our focus tonight will be on the first eight verses of this 17th chapter. Matthew 17, we read beginning with verse 1. And six days later, Jesus brought with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word tonight. Lord, what we have just sung is what is in our hearts as we come once again to open your word together as a church. We ask and we need for you to be our teacher tonight, that by your Spirit, the sword of the Spirit would penetrate our minds and hearts in a way that we are blessed and we are challenged, we are encouraged and we are reproved, we are rebuked and we are exhorted. Lord, all of these things, your word, by the work of your Spirit, your word is sufficient for these things. And so we ask you would meet with us tonight around your holy word. And Lord, we do pray again, as always, for those hearing me who are lost, and we ask that you would save. I'm sure every person here tonight, there is someone on each of our minds who is in need of your son. Lord, would you mercifully save these people whom you've put on our hearts and for whom we pray on a regular basis. Lord, would you save. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the unfathomable privilege of being 
part of your church. Thank you for this new life that we have and that we walk in. Bless tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord told his disciples that they must take up their cross and follow him. They must lose their life if they are to find life. And then in the verses we looked at this morning, we saw the urgency of that. We saw the weightiness of that command, that choice that is set before professing disciples and set before the world. It is an urgent choice because a future day of judgment is on its way. And the very one who is offered to sinners for life will be coming in glory to judge sinners if they don't receive that life. In fact, he's coming to judge the entire world. He will judge for the purpose of reward when it comes to believers. He will judge for the purpose of retribution when it comes to unbelievers. He said that not only would he be coming in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels, he said in verse 28 that there were some hearing him who would live to witness these things. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I would put before you tonight that the fulfillment of those words is found in the first eight verses of our chapter, the eight verses we look at together tonight. So tonight we think about a preview of future glory, a preview of future glory, the glory that the whole world will see when the judge comes from heaven. And tonight we're going to consider these first eight verses under five headings. The first one is this. We see a glorious privilege. A glorious privilege. Verse 1, And six days later, six days after he has made these statements, Jesus brought with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. The location of the mountain is not identified, but the three disciples who are allowed to accompany Jesus, they are identified. It's a reminder to us again that Jesus does not deal with all of his disciples the same. He dealt with his disciples as he saw best. He dealt with his disciples according to his perfect wisdom, and he dealt with his disciples according to his perfect purposes. And what he chose to do with each one was not the same. And right away, it's a good thing for us to think about. I mean, do we acknowledge that he is still exercising that same sovereign right when it comes to each one of us? That our shepherd has the right, and he has the wisdom, and he has the purpose in mind to deal with each one of us in a way that is unique to us. I mean, there are some things, of course, that we all share in common but in terms of how the Lord deals with us in the details of each of our lives, He deals with us according to His own sovereign wisdom. We don't all face the same circumstances. We didn't all come from the same backgrounds. We didn't all meet with the Lord in the exact same way or the same time in our lives. We don't all face the exact same challenges and tests. And I wonder, do we trust Him? 
Do we trust him with how he chooses to deal with us? How often do we look at a fellow disciple and their course might seem easier than ours? And we wonder, Lord, why is it so easy for them and so difficult for me? Or maybe in the reverse, we look at some of the difficulties that brothers and sisters have to deal with. I think about brothers and sisters severely persecuted in other parts of the world, and we see the comparative ease that we have, and we wonder why, Lord. Why are we allowed to live our lives in the kind of ease that we do? Do we trust Him with that? That He deals with each one of us as He chooses, and that His choices are good and wise and loving, especially when you're dealing with something that's disappointing to you? Do you trust that His wisdom toward you, you, your family, your situation, is He a good shepherd? a wise shepherd, a loving shepherd. So he doesn't select all 12 to go with him up on the high mountain. He selects three, Peter, James, and John, chosen for the glorious privilege of being the eyewitnesses of his future glory. Some, he says, some of those standing here will see this, and indeed only three are privileged to see it. One of our Lord's purposes is they will serve as eyewitnesses of what they saw, but not yet. The ninth verse says, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So one of the purposes for him taking them to be with him was they would serve as eyewitnesses of his glory, but not yet. And we'll deal with this more next week. But I'm amazed as I read verses 9 to 13 and hear what the Lord is talking about and then recognize what the disciples are picking up on. He talks about his death. He talks about his resurrection. And they spend their time talking about Elijah. (laughs) It's just interesting, isn't it? What's sort of just passing over their heads as our Lord talks to them. Well, they do go on to serve as eyewitnesses. Peter... We'll write about this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Don't tell the vision to anybody until after I've been raised from the dead. Well, Peter, after the resurrection, after the ascension, Peter has the privilege to talk about what he saw. The apostle John also seems to allude to it in the first chapter of the gospel of John, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And of course, that could be said just of the testimony of Christ's life. But perhaps John has in mind also what he saw on this mountain. James did not write about it because James didn't live long enough to write about it. James was the first apostle martyred. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So again, we see our Lord's sovereign plan for individual disciples because three disciples witnessed this glorious vision. Two are allowed to testify to it in writing, but one is chosen to testify to his faith in the glorious Christ by his own blood, by martyrdom. The first thing we see is a glorious privilege. The second thing you see is a glorious vision, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. I don't know what you think as you read those words. As I read that verse this week, what just rested on me is the fact that I can read it I can acknowledge the description, but there are really no words to capture it. And even reading what the Holy Spirit has given us for our mind's eye, I still can't fully conceive of it, what they must have witnessed. And I can't enter into it. I can read it, but I can't enter into it. Metamorpho is the word translated transfigure. We get our word metamorphosis from it. A change visible to others. A change that they witnessed, a transformation right in front of their eyes. So that the glory of the divine nature, the manifest glory of the divine nature, they're witnessing. It's on display. In our scripture reading, Jeremy read a passage that talks about Moses' shining face. But remember something, that's reflected glory. This is not reflected glory. This is glory that emanates from within Christ Jesus. This comes from the inside and is manifested on the outside. Manifested in his face, manifested in his clothing. His face described as shining like the sun. His face shone like the sun. You can't look at the sun for very long, can you? I mean, when it's in its full strength, you can't look at it for very long without hurting yourself. What they must have seen when his face is shining like the sun. And all of a sudden, the light that begins to manifest itself from within Christ turns his clothing white, a brilliant white, even by his appearance. The message is being driven home. Jesus is God. You're getting a glimpse of the manifestation of the divine nature. So this glorious privilege results in a glorious vision, but it doesn't stop there. You have a glorious testimony that accompanies that vision. And the first testimony comes from glorified saints. Verse 3, and behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is what God 
the Father wants these three disciples to recognize His Son is His Son, God incarnate. For a moment, the veil of lowly humanity is drawn aside and the divine nature shines through in terms of how it was manifested in brilliant light. Now remember something, even though Jesus himself was not a son of Adam and not a sinner, I mean, Adam wasn't his father. Adam represented us in the garden. Adam did not represent Jesus in the garden. Even though that's true, Jesus still came in the physical form of humanity post-fall, right? We bear the marks of the weakness that belongs to humanity post-fall. And though Jesus himself, his humanity was not the result of the fall, he still came bearing the likeness of sinful flesh, bearing the weakness of post-fall humanity. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Philippians 2.7 says, But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus takes to himself an additional nature, a true, true human nature. United in this one person, you have humanity and deity now. One having a beginning in time, the other from all eternity, the divine nature. But Jesus did not come taking to himself a human nature like Adam knew before the fall, but taking to himself the likeness of the nature you and I have since the fall. And so to look at Jesus was not to recognize anything regal about him just by virtue of his appearance. He was lowly. He had come in the form of a servant, but now for this moment that weakness is pulled aside and the strength of divine glory shines through. And in that moment, you have the witness of these glorified saints. Moses, Elijah, they make an appearance. They're talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. The one, Moses, God used to give his law. Elijah represents the voice of the prophets. So present, as it were, the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah. Each of these men identified in Scripture in a way that involved them with messianic expectation, eschatological significance. D.A. Carson recognized this. He says both Moses and Elijah had eschatological roles. Moses was the model for the eschatological prophet, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, and Elijah for the forerunner, Malachi 4. Both were men of God in times of transition. The first to introduce the covenant and the second to work for renewed adherence to it. Both experienced a vision of God's glory, one at Sinai and the other at Horeb. Now, however, the glory is Jesus' glory, for it is He who is transfigured and who radiates the glory of deity. Together they may well summarize the law and the prophets. 
This is all the more plausible when we recall that these two figures very rarely appear together in Judaism or in the New Testament. I mean, this is unique what we're seeing in this scene, Carson says. And he goes on to say, all these associations gain importance as the narrative moves on and Jesus is perceived to be superior to Moses and Elijah and indeed to supersede them. Also think about the fact that in Moses you have one who died and is now with the Lord. In Elijah, you have one who was translated and is now with the Lord. And they're very much alive, aren't they? They've retained their individual identities. They are recognizable. Now, we're not told how the disciples recognize them. But clearly they do because Peter offers construct three booths, and he mentions Moses and Elijah by name. And they are very much relational. Personality is present. Conversation is present. Don't you ever believe anything less than to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, fully alive, more alive than we would ever be. Individual, just like we are right now, recognizable to those who would know us, very much relational. This is our hope. But it also informs our understanding of Jesus because Moses and Elijah know him. They're talking with him. They know him to be the Son of God. And yet you have a testimony not just from glorified saints, you have a testimony from dull, non-glorified saints. An unwitting testimony. It is going to be their mistaken commentary that points to the glory of Christ. Because Peter has another bright idea. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here. Let let me commemorate this. Let me set up a memorial to this. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's clear, isn't it? These men are not just marveling at the scene. They are delighting in this experience. Lord, it is good that we are here. They're enjoying it. And then Peter talks about it like it's a marvelous threesome. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Could it get any better than this? You, Lord, and Moses and Elijah. And if you want to understand the majesty of Jesus, just take note of this. Peter actually shows respect to Jesus in what he says. He addresses him as Lord. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Then he submits his idea to Jesus. You see that? If you wish, if you wish, this is what I will do. And then when he talks about the three, who does he list first? Jesus. One for you. That's where he begins. One for Moses. One for Elijah. Lord, if this is what would please you, I would like to do this. One for you. You're first. And then Moses and then Elijah. I'll put you first, Lord. You'll be at the head, Lord which gives way to a glorious testimony from God. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, 
behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. A glorious privilege, a glorious vision, a glorious testimony from glorified saints and an unwitting testimony from dull, unglorified saints. And now this glorious testimony from the Father. The words were coming out of Peter's mouth when they were interrupted while he was still speaking. There is this cloud of glory, and it reminds us of how God manifested His presence in the Old Testament. This brilliant glory of God manifested in light and often in the form of a cloud. 1 Kings 8, 6, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of God manifested in this cloud that was so awful in terms of the sense of holiness they could not stand to minister because of it. Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. This cloud manifests the presence of God, the glory of God. And from that cloud they hear a voice. Out of the cloud comes this voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I want you to set your focus on Jesus in a singular fashion. What does that say? It says that Moses and Elijah are not worthy to be thought of as remotely on the same level as Jesus. They are servants of God. Jesus is the one and only beloved Son of God. Not at all on the same plateau. Not at all to be considered in the same realm. And the disciples immediately understand the correction because they go from what a pleasant place to terrified. When they hear this, verse 6, they fall on their faces and they are terrified. From delighted to terrified. From this is where we want to be to can we be somewhere else. From peaceful to fearful. Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah in terms of honor. Set your focus on my son. Good lesson for us, isn't it? We must beware 
the wrong kind of familiarity with Jesus. Jesus is our best friend. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our Lord brother. But he is the one and only son of God. The one and only begotten of the Father, the one and only beloved of the Father, the one and only beloved Son of God. Don't become over-familiar, wrongly familiar with Jesus. We struggle with that in the church of our time, don't we? You listen to a lot of what is put forth as praise music. And there's a kind of familiarity that lacks reverence in many of those songs. Beware treating the Son of God like He's common. Beware underestimating the fearfulness of holiness. We understand God's relationship to us in the terms of joy, but we also are to be a people who are known for our fear of the Lord. Do we understand His weightiness? Do we reverence Him for His holiness? Even the holy angels, holy angels, cover their faces and cover their feet in His presence. Should we not be characterized by reverence? So you have this glorious privilege, this glorious vision, this glorious testimony from glorified saints and this unwitting testimony from men just like us and our ignorance, and then you have the glorious testimony of God. Listen to Jesus. But I love the last two verses, verses 7 and 8. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The last thing we see is a glorious comfort from Christ. In the same scene where the holiness of Christ is exalted... The condescending love of Christ is on display. The mercy of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. He comes to them as they are cowering on the ground, their faces on the ground. They're not looking up, right? Verse 8, and lifting up their eyes. I mean, their eyes are downward. Jesus comes to them and he touches them. And he speaks kindly to them. Don't be afraid. Get up. Do not be afraid. We've met with that mercy, haven't we? How many times in my life and in yours have we deserved rebuke, but we meet with kindness? We've played the fool. We've acted foolishly and ignorantly, and yet our Savior is so tender with us and patient with us and kind to us loving toward us, restorative toward us, bestowing upon us even greater riches, greater riches, greater riches, and we've deserved none of them. That's our Savior. And the point is driven home because when they lift their eyes up, there's nobody there but Him. I want you to focus on Him. I want you to listen to Him. And when they lift their eyes up, there's nobody there but Him. The point is made. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus possesses singular glory, the very glory of God. And yet Jesus is the merciful Savior of sinful, stupid men 
who can let things come out of our mouths and we don't even know what we're saying. He saves people like us. And it's that Jesus who offers himself to you for life. It is that same Jesus who will one day come in the glory of his Father and with his angels to judge the world. And so the question is, how do we wish to meet with him? On the ground of mercy, on the ground of his kindness and love and grace, or do we want to meet with him on the ground of judgment? And if you know him by the grace of God, then how should we regard him? With what kind of singular focus should we live our lives? With what kind of singular honor should we think about him and live toward him? How often our minds are occupied with people, mere flesh and blood, what they think of us, how they regard us, what their opinions might be, what would please them when our God would have us to live in such a fashion that we would hear Jesus. Lord, what would please you? And you know, taking the whole counsel of God into our minds and hearts, we're not talking about a rebellious life or an ungodly kind of independence. Listen, you don't honor Jesus if you're not submissive to God-ordained authority. You don't honor him. By the way, students and founders Christian school, do you know that truth? That if you say you love Jesus, then you need to honor your teachers, listen to them, be submissive toward them. You need to honor your parents, love them, listen to them, be submissive to them. So you don't honor Jesus if you live a life that disregards God-ordained relationships that we ought to pay attention to, but never in a way that loses sight of the singular place that Jesus possesses when the Bible says that Jesus is Lord. I mean, even if Moses and Elijah were here, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for making the glory of your son known to us. Thank you for our Redeemer, our Savior, our Shepherd, our friend, our God. Thank you, Lord, for opening our hearts, our spiritual eyes to see. And thank you for your patience toward us. While even though we are redeemed, we are still so often filled with the same kind of ignorance and foolishness and mistaken thinking and words that we see in our brother Peter on this occasion. And yet our Savior is so kind and patient toward us. Thank you that we are your workmanship. You've taken us to be your own. You have laid hold of us. You'll never let go. And you are conforming us to the glorious image of your Son. With all of our ups and downs and all of our starts and stops and all of our successes and failures, the things that we see well because our Father in heaven has revealed it to us and the things that we see dimly because we're still not glorified in all of it. You are faithful to finish what you started. 
what joy this gives us, what peace, what rest to be loved like you love us. Please, Holy Spirit of God, continually fill us in such a way that our eyes are fixed on Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.